20. The patron had engaged me as a kitchen plongeur. That is, my job was to wash up, keep the kitchen clean, prepare vegetables, make tea, coffee and sandwiches, do the simpler cooking and run errands. The terms were, as usual, 500 francs a month and food. But I had no free day and no fixed working hours. At the Hotel X, I had seen catering at its best with unlimited money and good organisation. And now, at the Auberge, I learnt how things are done in a thoroughly bad restaurant. It's worth describing, for there are hundreds of similar restaurants in Paris, and every visitor feeds in one of them occasionally. I should add, by the way, that the Auberge was not the ordinary cheap eating house frequented by students and workmen. We didn't provide an adequate meal at less than 25 francs, and we were picturesque and artistic, which sent up our social standing. There were the indecent pictures in the bar, the Norman decorations, which sham beams on the wall, electric lights done up as candlesticks, peasant pottery, even a mounting block at the door. And the patron and the head waiter were Russian officers, and many of the customers titled Russian refugees. In short, we were decidedly chic. Nevertheless, the conditions behind the kitchen door were suitable for a pigsty. For this is what our service arrangements were like. The kitchen measured 15 feet long by 8 broad, and half this space was taken up by the stoves and tables. All the pots had to be kept on shelves out of reach, and there was only room for one dustbin. The dustbin used to be crammed full by midday, and the floor was normally an inch deep in a compost of trampled food. For firing we had nothing but three gas stoves, without ovens, so all the joints had to be sent out to the bakery. And there was no larder. Our substitute for one was a half-roofed shed in the yard, with a tree growing in the middle of it. The meat vegetables and so forth, lay there on the bare earth, raided by rats and cats. There was no hot water laid on. Water for washing up had to be heated in pans, and, as there was no room for these on the stoves when meals were cooking, then, with, with most of the plates had to be washed in cold water. This, with soft soap and the hard Paris water, and scraping the grease off with bits of newspaper. We were so short of saucepans that I had to wash each one as soon as it was done with, instead of leaving them till the evening. This alone wasted probably an hour a day. Owing to some scamping of expense on the installation, the electric light usually fused at eight in the evening. The patron would only allow us three candles in the kitchen, and the cook said, Three was unlucky, <laughs> so we had to use only two. Our coffee grinder was borrowed from a bistro nearby, and our dustbin and brooms from the concierge. After the first week, a quantity of linen did not come back from the wash, as the bill had not been paid. We were in trouble with the inspector of labour, who had discovered that the staff included no Frenchmen. He had a, several private interviews with the patron, who, I believe, was obliged to bribe him. The electric company was still dunning us 
and when the duns found that we would buy them off with aperitif, they came every morning. We were in debt at the grocery, and the credit would have been stopped, only the grocer's wife, which was a mustachioed woman of sixty, had taken a fancy to Jules, who was sent every morning to cajole her. Similarly, I had to waste an hour every day haggling over vegetables in the Rue de Commerce, just to save a few centimes. These are the results of starting a restaurant on insufficient capital. And in these conditions, well, the cook and I were expected to serve 30 or 40 meals a day, and would later on serve a 100. From the time, and from the first day, it was too much. The cook's working hours were from 8 in the morning till midnight, and mine were from 7 in the morning till half-past 12 the next morning. 17 and a half hours, almost, without a break. We never had time to sit down till five in the afternoon, and even then there was no seat except the top of the dustbin. Boris, who lived nearby and had not to catch the last bistro home, worked from eight in the morning till two in the next morning. That's eighteen hours a day, seven days a week. And such hours, though not unusual, are nothing extraordinary in Paris. Life settled at once into a routine that made the Hotel X seem like a holiday. Every morning at six, I drove myself out of bed, did not shave, sometimes washed, hurried up to the Palace de l'Italie, and fought for a place on the metro. By seven, I was in the desolation of the cold, filthy kitchen, with the potato skins and bones and fishtails littered on the floor, and piles of plates stuck together in their grease waiting from overnight. I couldn't start on the plates yet because the water was cold, and I had to fetch milk and make coffee, for the others arrived at eight and expected to find coffee ready. Also, there was always several copper saucepans to clean. Those copper saucepans are the bane of a plongeur's life. They have to be scoured with sand and bunches of chain, ten minutes for each one, and then polished on the outside with brasso. Fortunately, the art of making them has been lost, and they are gradually vanishing from the French kitchens, though one can still buy them second-hand. When I had begun on the plates, the cook would take me away from the plates to begin skinning onions, and when I had begun on the onions, the patron would arrive and send me out to buy cabbages. When I came back with the cabbages, the patron's wife would tell me to go to some shop half a mile away, and buy a pot of rouge. And by the time I came back, there'd be more vegetables waiting, and the plates were still not done. In this way, our incompetence piled one job on another throughout the day, with everything in arrears. Till ten, things went comparatively easily. Though we were working fast, no one lost his temper. The cook would find time to talk about her artistic nature, and say that I did not think Tolstoy was epitant and sing in a fine soprano voice as she minced beef on the board. But at ten, the waiters began clamouring for their lunch, which they had early, and at eleven the first customers would be arriving, and suddenly everything became hurry and bad temper. There was not the same furious rushing and yelling as in the Hotel X, but an atmosphere of muddled, 
petty spite and exasperation. Discomfort was at the bottom of it. It was unbearably cramped in the kitchen. The dishes had to be put on the floor, and one had to be thinking constantly about not stepping on them. The cook's vast buttocks banged against me as she moved to and fro. A ceaseless, nagging chorus of orders streamed from her. Unspeakable idiot! How many times have I told you not to bleed the beetroots? Quick, let me get to the sink. Put those knives away. Get on with the potatoes. What have you done with my strainer? Oh, I'll leave those potatoes alone. Didn't I tell you to skim the bouillard? Take that can of water off the stove. Never mind the washing up. Chop the celery. No, not like that, you fool. Like this. There. Look at you, letting those peas boil over. Now, get to work and scale those herrings. Look, do you call this plate clean? Wipe it on your apron. Put the salad on the floor. That's right. Put it where I'm bound to step at it. Ha! Look out. That pot's boiling over. Get me down that saucepan. No, the other one. No. Put this on the grill. Throw those potatoes away and don't waste time. Throw them on the floor. Thread them in. Now, throw down some sawdust. This floor's like a skating rink. Look, you fool. That steak's burning. Mon Dieu. Why did they send me an idiot for a plongeur? Who are you talking to? Do you realize that my aunt was a Russian countess? Etc. 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 This went on till three o'clock without much variation, except that about eleven the cook usually had a crisis de neuf and a flood of tears. From three to five was fairly a slack time for the waiters, but the cook was still busy, and I was working my fastest, for there was a pile of dirty plates waiting and it was a race to get them done, or partly done, before dinner began. The washing up was doubled by the primitive conditions, a cramped draining board, tepid water, sodden cloths, and a sink that got blocked once an hour. By five, the cook and I were feeling unsteady on our feet, not having eaten or sat down since seven. We used to collapse, she on the dustbin, and I on the floor, drinking a bottle of beer and apologised for some of the things that we had said in the morning. Tea was what kept us going. We took care to have a pot always stewing. We drank pints of it during the day. At half-past five, the hurry and quarrelling began all over again, and now worse than before, because everyone was tired out. The cook had increased the nerfs at six and another at nine. They came so regularly that one could have told the time by them. She would flop down by the dustbin, begin weeping hysterically, and cry out that never, no, never had she thought to come to such a life as this. Her nerves would not stand it, and she studied music in Vienna, and she had a bedridden husband to support, etc., etc. Another time, one would have been sorry for her. But tired as we all were, her whimpering voice merely infuriated us. Jules used to stand in the doorway and mimic her weeping. The patron's wife nagged, and Boris and Jules quarrelled all day, because Jules shirked his work, and Boris, as head-waiter, claimed the larger share of the tips. Only the second day after the restaurant opened, they came to blows in the kitchen over a two-franc tip, and the cook and I had to separate them. The only person who never forgot his manners was the patron. He kept the same hours as the rest of us, but he had no work to do. For it was his wife who really managed things. His sole job, besides ordering the supplies, 
was to stand in the bar, smoking cigarettes and looking gentlemanly. And he did that to perfection. The cook and I generally found time to eat our dinner between ten and eleven o'clock, and at midnight the cook would steal a packet of food for her husband, stow it under her clothes, and make off, whimpering that these hours would kill her, that she should give notice in the morning. Jules also left at midnight, usually after a dispute with Boris, who had to look after the bar till two. Between twelve and half-past I did what I could to finish the washing up. There was no time to attempt doing the work properly, and I used simply to rub the grease off the plates with table napkins. As for the dirt on the floor, I let it lie, or swept the worst of it out of sight under the stoves. At half-past twelve I would put on my coat, and I would hurry out. The patron, bland as ever, would stop me as I went down the alleyway past the bar. Mais, mon chéri monsieur, how tired you look. Please, do me the favour of accepting this glass of brandy. He would hand me the glass of brandy, as courteously as though I had been a Russian duke instead of a plongeur. He treated all of us like this. It was our compensation for working seventeen hours a day. As a rule, the last metro was almost empty. Great advantage for one could then sit down and sleep for a quarter of an hour. Generally, I was in bed by half-past one. Sometimes I missed the train and had to sleep on the floor of the restaurant, but, well, it hardly mattered, for I could have slept on cobblestones at that time.